family might be one of the like most used words with a variety of different meanings in our culture. You know, I was, um, I'm trying to write a sermon on family without making reference to Fast and the Furious, and I just can't, I just can't do it. I, it's just, there's this whole, do you guys know the Fast and the Furious? Look, we're all Christian people. We wouldn't see that movie. But what I hear is that it's about this like ragtag group of criminals who are street racers in Los Angeles, right? And they all grew up together. And, uh, and they sit around the table and they barbecue. And then whoever takes the first bite has to say grace. And it's all about this family. And they're not flesh and blood. And there's no adoption papers available. But, but they have just, by the bond of the experience that they have, they've called themselves family. And they've been pushing that for nine movies. And the only thing really pushing through all of those, I mean, it's a crazy... Uh, see, I, again, I'm a Christian man. I wouldn't want... But, but, you know, they've gone to space and they've been all over the world or whatever. But the thing that's like run through, there's like memes about it. You know, like the thing that runs through is, is this idea that family is everything. But by family, they don't mean like the people they grew up with uh, that they were related to. They mean this like group of shared experiences. You know, at one point they've been outlaws and then they worked for the FBI. <laughs> as happens all the time, and, uh, you know, and, and, and then they went and fought other uh, bad guys, and then they fought bad FBI guys. You know, they've been all over the place, but the, the thing that really is the linchpin of this kind of idea of why this is popular is because, hey, we're together. We're family. People want to connect. People want to be in families. It's something that's natural for us. The other, um, since I'm a Christian man, I have seen this one, but it's been a long time. Do you remember the movie Heidi? Yeah, like Saturday afternoons uh, <laughs> when, when we were kids, Heidi would be on. And I was always so taken um, that what Heidi was really excited about it was uh, when she finally had a place at the table. Isn't that what we want? We want a place at the table. We want the people that we love to love us back. And we want to know who is it that is my, my tribe, my gang, my fam, my, my, the people that I'm responsible for and the people that are responsible for me? Who, who is it that I'm connected to? And so Jesus, this, this little, I tried really hard to preach on more than three verses uh, this week. I just couldn't do it because in this short little, actually, I just decided that I'm not going to preach on like the rest of Luke. I'm just going to take these three verses. And then I went to a soccer game with my daughter and some other guy um, who was there was making fun of me for only preaching on three verses at a time. And I was like, darn, he's right. Um, uh, but such a short little passage that we kind of just blow right over. And yet in this short little scene, Jesus turns our idea of family completely upside down in a way that I bet you're not comfortable with and neither am I. We've read this before. We know Jesus said something like this. We've probably heard sermons on it. We've read books maybe, but still isn't there something that Jesus like reordering what we mean by our primary like family, our, our primary place where we are connected, where we have responsibility, where we are supposed to love and be loved most, where we are supposed to put up with people, where we're supposed to forgive people, the, our primary relationship on earth. He totally like changes the definition. And that's pretty crazy. And if we're going to understand this, 
um, we're gonna have to put this story in its proper context. So let's, so three, before we tell the story, we'll get about half of the sermon just in context, but, um, but, but three really important pieces of context for you. First of all, there's this story's biblical context. It is somewhere in the narrative. In fact, Luke puts it in a little different place than Mark puts it. So you're always wondering, that doesn't mean it wasn't true. It doesn't mean these people made this up. It just, as Luke is recollecting and collecting these stories, he puts this little scene right at, in a very particular place, right where he wants it to be. And I want to kind of think about, we had a great conversation, by the way, on Wednesdays. Come to Wednesday night. So good. Um, you guys are so wise. I just hear like, I, I, I love hearing God talk to me through your voices. Thank you for that. But good conversation about this, like who the, who the good soil is, right? So Luke has just told us Jesus is going to say stuff. And Jesus looks out at the crowd and goes, there's four different kinds of soils here. There's going to be people that it's in one ear and out the other. There's going to be people that it springs up with joy, but they never really commit to it. There's no depth there. There's going to be people um, that would commit to it, but they're just committed to too many other things. The worries and cares and pleasures of the world choke it out. And then there's going to be some people with this really good soil. And I think it's really instructive to hear Luke say that, right? Hey, Jesus said there's going to be these four kinds of soils and then gives us a chance to use that instruction as Jesus says something that is pretty revolutionary. As Jesus says, my brothers, my mother are those that hear the word of God and do it. Well, I imagine there's some of us even in the room now who that is instruction that falls on deaf ears. No, come on, that doesn't make any sense. It's all about family. Dom Toretto said so. <laughs> That's the Fast and the Furious guy. I'm going to try no more Fast and Furious references, I promise. Um, we hear Jesus say that and we go, he can't mean that. I mean, it's obvious, it's obvious that our nuclear family is the most important thing. Jesus must have meant something else. Or there might be people who go, yeah, Jesus meant something by that, but I'm not really going to spend much time figuring that out. It's shallow soil. You don't dig in. And there might be people who go, wow, that's revolutionary. What's for lunch? And the cares and pleasures of the world just kind of choke it away. But then there might be people who hear Jesus say, man, my core place of identity, the people that I'm most responsible for and the people that are most responsible for me, the people who are my family, are no longer primarily the people that I grew up with or in the, a nuclear family, but rather are defined a completely different way. And it might be offensive. Like, that, that's a hard word. But there's going to be some of us who are that good soil who are going to let that grow into something beautiful in our lives. So as Jesus says this hard saying, Luke puts it right where he wants it. Luke says, hey... Um, he gives the story of Jesus saying, my words are going to fall on all kinds of soils, and then, boom, here's the word, what kind of soils are going to fall on in our hearts. So, along with the biblical context, there's the context of a first century family. You know, it's pretty easy to put this kind of story, I don't know, to over-theologize it, Theolo theologize, over-theologicalize, um, to make it too esoteric and not grounded in the fact that Jesus had a mom. 
that Jesus had brothers, that Jesus was from somewhere, and that mattered. It mattered to him, it mattered to the people around him, it mattered in society. Not only Jesus was from somewhere, but Jesus was an oldest son, and that mattered. He was from a working class family in Nazareth, in Galilee. His dad was a contractor that that um, the, we, we all know Joseph was a carpenter. That word also kind of means bricklayer. So I think the, the best way to describe the family that Jesus uh, grew up in was, you know, blue collar, productive, part of the culture, contractor, builder. Um, and in a way that is hard for us to understand, the relationships that people were born into set their identity for their whole life. You know, that's probably still true some. Our story always starts with where we're from and a little about our family. Hey, tell me about yourself. Well, I'm from Garden Grove. I, like Jesus, was raised by a contractor. <laughs> it's true. Um, um, but you, that, that's always part of our story. But not in a way it was in the first century. And we have to know that if we're going to see how revolutionary this statement of Jesus's was. Um, in a way that is, is hard for us to describe, they were defined by their family, by the place where they were from. It was, you know, we might think that those things define us a little, but not forever. We still go out and make our own way in the world. In fact, I think that's the instruction we give our kids, right? Is you got to go out and make a name for yourself. Where that was less the idea. It was more the idea that you started with your family's reputation and you had the opportunity to build on it or to mess it up, but that you really started with your family's reputation. We think of raising a family as launching kids into the world, but that was pretty foreign in the first century. Family was, was provision for elderly years, you know? Like, I make jokes all the time about, hey, I'm nice to you because I want you to put me in a good old folks home someday or whatever to my kids, you know? But that, was, that, that wasn't even a thing, right? No, in your elderly years, it was your family that was going to care for you. It was the primary source of income. The family business mattered. What your parents did that was you had to really do something to break out of that you were economically tied to your family the strata of society you were in and the skills you learned and the 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 the, the industry of your town this stuff defined you most importantly it was your source of identity it's how you knew who you were David De Silva has written a, a great book called Honor, Patronage, Kinship, and Purity. Um, and it gives us a picture of first century life. I'm going to quote him a few times here. So De Silva says this. He says, location in a larger family, or he calls it an ancestral home. The Old Testament word for this is an ob, A-B. And an ob was like the, the patriarch and then everyone in that family. And you were very much defined by what ob you were in. Our father Abraham meant something. It meant we are in the ob, the household. That's what defines us as being downstream from Abraham. So location in a larger family, an ancestral house, is critical not only for the person's self-perception, but also for the perception and expectations others will have of him or her. In the ancient world, people are not just taken on their own merits. Instead, their merits begin with the merits or debts of their lineage, their reputation, the reputation of their ancestral house. 
Man, you see why Luke spent so much time connecting Jesus to David, to the Old Testament prophecies. You see why those birth narratives are so important because as Jesus steps on the scene or to the people that first read this, the question would be, what Ab is this guy from? How is he defined? Where is he from? Luke spends a lot of time saying he is God's son for this reason. De Silva continues, he says, people are known first by their father's name in Jewish culture. Hence, Bar Abbas, Bar Timius, Bar Jonah. These are names you run across in scriptures. That's son of Jonah, son of Abbas, whatever. The, the father's reputation becomes the starting point for the reputation of children. With this as background, it, it makes more sense that the people in Jesus' hometown, do you remember that story uh, several chapters ago as as Jesus announces his Messiahship, grabs the scroll of Isaiah and says, um, this is all fulfilled in your hearing. And how did the people in his hometown respond? Isn't this Joe's kid? Isn't he the carpenter? Don't we have his brothers and sisters with us here? They are less willing to say, like in our culture, we might go, no matter where you're from, if you have something important to say that rings true, we'll kind of listen to it. But that was less true in the first century. That's why Jesus is rejected in Nazareth, because in his hometown, people hear him and go, kid, you're a carpenter. You built my fence. We've seen you. We know who you are. I had, we, it's still like this a little, you know, of all of the teachers that I let down with my poor study habits, one sticks out in particular. Her name was Miss Habibi, my Spanish teacher my sophomore year. I sat behind a girl that was really pretty, and I was embarrassed of trying to speak Spanish, and so I just refused to try. I just wasn't going to embarrass myself like that, you know? And so I, I tortured this poor woman. I feel very bad. The rumor was she retired that year, and the rumor was she retired early for a reason, and it was my fault. And it very well might be. Some, I hope she's a Christian. I get to apologize someday in heaven. But she went from teaching to subbing. And three years later, she was subbing in my sister's class. And my sister tells the story, by the way, I think my sister's usually on YouTube. Hey, Amanda. Um, my sister tells the story that she was calling the role and said, you know, whoever it was, Burkhart, whatever, Combs. And then she looked up and went, Combs? <laughs> and my sister had to say, it's okay. <laughs> I'm different than he was, you know. Um, so if you could just take that to its, to, to its logical conclusion, like who your family was set the tone for who you could be. So in our story today, Luke allows us to confront this thing that the first century readers, that the people at the time would have confronted. Jesus is being presented as two different people. He is teaching as the king of the kingdom of God the lawgiver of the new kingdom, the one inviting people to follow him that they might not die and live forever in an eternal kingdom. And in the middle of this teaching, like the real world comes crashing in, he's still the carpenter. He's still Mary's son. He has brothers. De Silva describes a first century Jew Jewish home like this. He says... The first and fewest possible parts of a family are master and servant, husband and wife, father and children. 
The terms master, husband, father describe the same individual who is thus placed at the hub of the family unit, the head, in relation to whom the other members of the family take their bearing. Now, it seems a little old-fashioned for us, but he's not telling us about 2022. He's telling us about the first century. And in our story, Joseph, Mary's husband and the father of the rest of Jesus' siblings, apparently has died. He is not in the picture, which would leave Jesus as the head of this ob, the one responsible for not only caring and providing for this family, but of setting the reputation for this family. Jesus' reputation was not only reflecting on him, it was reflecting on the household. His reputation would most profoundly promote or limit the reputation of the rest of his family. When Mark tells the story, we're told that Jesus' mother and his siblings came to quiet Jesus. And, and you know, there's, uh, I'll preach that some other time, but, but the language makes you think that they think he's acting in a way that's dangerous or misguided. I don't know if they believed him, didn't believe him. The language kind of goes either way. Really, it's just that they're like, Jesus, you are making a scene that we don't think you can control. They come to, to quiet him. Luke doesn't tell that part of the story. And And it's probably because he doesn't need to tell that part of the story. In the setting, this crowd and his his family comes, there's tension no matter what they have to say, and we can imagine a million things that they might come to say. It might not just be that they're trying to quiet Jesus. It might be, Jesus, the fence fell down, and we need you back home. Jesus, your little brother's hurt, and he needs you. There were very real family responsibilities. He is, after all, the oldest son of Mary. Who needs him? One last bit of context that that we kind of need to bring to the story to to understand it fully. Not only does Luke uh, place this in a particular place in the story, and not only is Jesus from somewhere and in a very real family, but Jesus is a rabbi delivering a teaching. We We need to look at the rabbinic context of this, what's actually happening there that day. Because we've talked about this before, but there was a a normal, a normative way that someone became a rabbi. And that mattered. There's a normal way that people become scholars, and it matters, right? You don't wander into a seminary and go, trust me, sign up for my class, let's go. And we need to see your credentials. There's a normal way that these things happen. Um, In in the case of rabbis, a, a young man would have been identified pretty early, maybe eight, nine, ten years old, would have started going, this kid kind of gets it. This kid is able to, not only has a great memory to memorize the scriptures, but, but when you talk to him, there's just a maturity there. He seems to be spiritually minded. This, might turn, this boy might turn into a teacher, and then at some point around his bar mitzvah, a traveling rabbi might come into town, and, and his family might present him to the rabbi and say, hey, you know, have you, have you seen this kid? Why don't you have a conversation with him? See if he has a, see, see if he has a future as a career as a rabbi. And, and, the, and the rabbi would examine him. So, um, so this would be his, his credentials of how somebody could get a crowd like Jesus and, and preach like Jesus is preaching. Think about how little we know about Jesus' training. Who'd he study under? After... He's 12 and asking great questions in the temple. What do we know? Really not very much. How has Luke presented Jesus' qualifications? 
From any other great rabbi, his qualifications would have preceded him. And through human eyes, they should. He's from this family. He studied, studied under this you know, famous rabbi. He, he's from this school of thought. You know, I teach high school students, and I, I teach them all the time how to vet sources. When you just Google who's Jesus, now you need to know what that website is about. You need to know what are the qualifications of the person, um, you know, teaching you. And this is what we're kind of confronted with here as Jesus' two worlds are kind of crashing together. The qualifications that Luke has given for Jesus are very different. We're told in the birth narrative who he is, Joseph, in fact, was not his father, but rather Yahweh is. He presents Jesus as this person with firsthand authority and teaching who does miraculous works time after time. So who is Jesus? Is he the country contractor or is he the king to be worshipped? Not only was there a right way to, to become a rabbi, there was a right way to call disciples. And that mattered too. As I've just said, a rabbi would enter a village and the family might present a child who... who you know, had some, had some spiritual insight and, and the rabbi would, in, would uh, say, okay, yeah, that's, it was like an application process, like getting into a school or something. The rabbi would say, yes, okay, you follow me. Imagine being a bystander in this scene as Jesus' family is standing over here, as the crowd is here, and you're, uh, let's pretend we are like, good Jewish followers of the law. We have a heart for God and we roll up on this scene and we go, oh, I've heard about Jesus, this miracle worker. Um, who trained him? And we're not sure. Okay, uh, well, where's he from? Nazareth. Nazareth. I have not heard of learned people coming from Nazareth. Well, who's following him? Who are the disciples that are they from prestigious families that the disciples are following him? Well, they're those guys over there. So, fishermen, a tax collector, and women. This does not look like a normal scene. And Luke brings this to this beautiful moment where the reader, where you and I have to wrestle with who's Jesus. Is Jesus this pretty good speaker, miracle worker, or is he the king of kings to be worshipped and bowed down in front of? So the story is pretty simple. Let's look at the story. Luke 8, 19, Then his mother and brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. I mean, with all of that context, this scene has a little more drama to it than at first read, doesn't it? What a setup. Luke, uh, here's the hot take. Luke is a really good writer. Jesus' family comes to him. Those that he is defined by through the world's eyes. Are you with me? Those that he is most responsible to and most responsible for come to him and can't get there because of the crowd. Do you see the scene? Do you see the, what is going to happen here? Verse 20, he's told your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. This is far more than just, hey Jesus, guess what? Your mom's here. 
This is, maybe it's too much to say this is a challenge, but this is a tension. This is a little bitty reckoning. This is, um, this is teaching over time to go, this is like, hey, Jesus, maybe teaching time is over and it's time to go back to who you grew up to be. I mean, we have the, the benefit of the empty tomb, of the cross, of the ascension. We know who Jesus is. Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Jesus is God. And yet, as Luke is writing this, people don't know. The scene is being set up. What's going to define him? Are the crowds, the demands of the crowds? His identity as a small-town guy with a, cam- uh, with a family to care for? Or is his identity the divine king? Verse 21, he says, uh, Luke says, but he answered them, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Man, first, would you notice that this is not a rejection of Mary or his siblings? And I think it's too much to read that in. Jesus never says, that's not my mom. Those aren't my brothers. No, there's no scene like that. In fact, Um, At the cross, we see Jesus very much in the role of Mary's son as he provides that she would be with John and John would be like her son. And we see Jesus very much loving his mom like an oldest son should. This is not a rejection of, of his family, but rather he takes this as a teaching opportunity to say something very profound about who he is and about who we are, about who we are to each other. So let's look at those three things and I'll be done. What do we learn from this about who Jesus is? What do we learn from this about who we are? And then what do we learn from this about who we are to each other? First, about Jesus. As Jesus says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. He's saying my primary place of belonging, the thing that defines me, is not my relationship to my earthly family, but rather my relationship to God the Father. Jesus is human. Jesus is God. Luke has made it very clear that God is actually that uh, God the Father is Jesus' actual and true Father. We see in the birth narrative, we see it at the temple when he's 12. Jesus was not defined by his earthly family. That's a way to describe him. Um, and that is not to say he didn't love and care for his earthly family, but Jesus claimed to be and acted as the divine king. He is saying, I am not just the head of that ob. I am the head of this ob. Are you with me? The way you expect me to care for Mary and my brothers and sisters, it is my intention to care for all of you like that. In the same way that they would be defined by my reputation, by my works, I intend that you would be defined by my reputation and my works. Also, Jesus finds his identity in God. This didn't limit the number of people that that find their identity in Christ. Rather, it throws the door open that you and I might also find our identity in Christ. This is not a rejection of Mary and his brothers and sisters. This is an inclusion of us in the family of God. So what's this say about us? What's this say 
about the people sitting in that crowd that day? Well, first, and maybe most importantly, Jesus is making it very clear that entrance into the family of God, entrance into the ob of the divine, entrance into the family that is defined and described and finds marching orders and finds security and finds provision and finds love by Jesus the head. The entrance is not proximity. It's not where you're from. It's also not earthly relationship. It's not possible to be born a Christian. It's also not ideological connection. It's not that we would all think the same. We've spent lots of time in here talking about how different even in Jesus' 12 apostles, the philosophical approaches were vast. Rather, the thing that defines the kingdom, the thing that defines who is in the family of God is Jesus, not an ideology. Are you with me? Think about. So Jesus says it is, it is those who hear and those who act. What's that sound like? Those who hear and those who do. Is this not the good soil? Is this not what Jesus has just taught us in the parable of the four soils? See, that last soil that doesn't prioritize the pleasures and cares of the world, that doesn't, isn't so shallow that there's no depth of relationship, that doesn't approach the word of God like in one ear and out the other, but rather the entrance into the family of God is those who hear what Jesus is saying, and do it. And it is more than just joining a club. It is more than just joining an ideology. It is joining an ob. It is joining a household. Think about how offensive that is in its inclusivity. This kind of sounds like it is possible for anyone who will hear the word of God and do it to be in the family of God. And there are those that would really rather they could make a list of who's not eligible. There were those sitting in the crowd with Jesus who knew full well, let's start with Gentiles, all of them. Now let's start with the unclean. Those possessed, those ill. And Jesus says those are just not dividers anymore. Think about how offensive that is in its inclusivity. Now think about how offensive that is in its exclusivity. You cannot memorize your way into the household of God. You cannot good work your way into the household of God. You cannot legal, like, be raised in church and just keep going to get into the household of God. It is a very narrow door available to everyone. And it's offensive to a normal human heart to say being actually defined by, described by, in the family of Jesus is available to even the person you like the least. It's also offensive to some of us to say, but the door is just Christ and Christ alone. You must hear what Jesus has to say and you must do it. Second, this teaches us about us, is that we find our identity in our relationship to God, not our relationship to our earthly family. And you know, that can be hard for a couple of different reasons. First of all, maybe your earthly family 
has included a whole lot of mess. You know, maybe there have been failures and insults. Maybe it's even included abuse or at least dismissiveness. Maybe you longed for love that wasn't there. Maybe you feel shame about where you are from. Jesus put an absolute end to that in the kingdom of God, that we might no longer be, dis- be defined by where we are from. We might not any longer be defined by what our family has done or what kind of people we come from, but rather that Jesus would say, those that hear my words and do it, you're in a brand new family. My family, my mother, my brothers, those that take their primary identity from me are not any particular people, but rather people who hear my word and do it. That is not your, pri- that is not your primary identity. This is. Do you want to know if you are loved? Look at the cross. If you come from a family where love was not available, you had to work and earn for every drop of of, of love or acceptance, would you look to the great love of Jesus that died for you and make your identity not as a child rejected, but as a child welcomed and loved? If there has been pain in your past and you define yourself by the pain of your past, would you, would you know that in this small teaching and as this small teaching plays out to the cross and the empty tomb, the teachings of the scripture is that it is not your past that defines you in the family of God. Rather, it is the love of Jesus. It is his death on the cross, the empty tomb, and his promise that he's making a place for you. That's what defines you. It can be hard. This can be a hard word for a completely opposite reason, too. It can also be tough if you're very proud of the family and place where, where you're from. Maybe in the world's eyes, you come from a place in a family that opens a lot of doors, that your family name still is something that is, is, is beneficial to you in your life. Maybe there was plenty of love. Maybe, um, maybe it was outstanding, but, but the, the Christian families know that our love is only intended to point our kids towards the love of Jesus. Maybe there was great success in the family you grew up in. And so that becomes a little more of a challenge, as Jesus says. Those in my family are not because your dad was an elder at church. My dad was an elder at church. It's not because you were a leader in your youth group. No, the people in my family are those that hear my words and do them. Third, what it teaches us about us is that we're responsible for each other like family. This is so hard. We live in such a transitory world and we live in such a transitory place. You know, I think I've been at this church six six years and what are there, maybe 80 of us in the room. Um, There's never been more than 100 of us in the room and yet I bet 500 people have made their way through here. Um, You know, we have a lot of military folks. We also live in a place where people are coming and going all the time and it's difficult for us to have a sense of how connected we are in Christ. And this is why we need just this teaching where it is not just common experience that that's what makes us feel loved and feel connected, but what actually connects us 
is that we are in the ob of Jesus. There's responsibility with that. There's a deep understanding that this is not a club. This is not a school. This is not a hospital for people with hurt hearts. I hope people get healed here. I hope people get taught here. I hope people enjoy church membership and the benefits of a good potluck. But that's not what we are. And it's tough because family is such an overused word. You know, I've joked about this before, but it's not only like Heidi and Fast and Furious, but it's also I bought a Honda and now I get, I get emails all the time about being in the Honda family. <laughs> because they're trying to engender loyalty. Six years from now, when I pay off that Honda, they want to set the seed right now for me to buy another Honda. But when we say that we are in the family of God, we're not trying to engender loyalty to being at this church or being at a Baptist church or, or me being the preacher you listen to. It has nothing to do with that. It speaks to the profound connection that exists for those of us that are in Christ, who hear his words and do it. It means forgiving each other like family should. Right? A kid at school calls your kid a bad name. If you're the dad, you go, punch him. <laughs> if you're the mom, you say, just ignore him. <laughs> I don't want you to start a fight, but I do want you to finish him. <laughs> but we just can't have that in the family of God. Because if your brother or sister calls you a name and is mean to you, you go, you have to work this out. There has to be forgiveness here. You don't get to ignore them. You don't get to hit them. We have to forgive because we're family. Because we're the ob of Jesus. Not to the exclusion of Mary and the brothers, but to the inclusion of the rest of us. It means... We allow for each other's quirks. Anybody got a weird brother or sister? My sister has a weird brother. <laughs> it means we serve like family should. It means we pray for each other like family should. I know that, and you know, this is our expression of it here at this church, but it's more profound than that. It's global. that we allow for each other, that we provide for each other, that we serve each other, that we pray for each other, that all of the things that we would say are appropriate of family apply to each other because we're in the family of God. Let's briefly talk about what this means about the people we love. What's that mean for our earthly family and, and um, you know, those, those family and friend, those kin around us? Understanding what Jesus is talking about changes so many things about the way we relate to each other. It means your source of provision, both spiritually, emotionally, even, even physically, is not your family and friends, so you're free to love them even if they aren't perfect. If your family has let you down, would you know that in the family of God, your father has not let you down? 
will provide for you. There is love. There is hope. There is attaboy. There is, oh darling, you're so pretty. Which frees us up to love the imperfect people in our earthly family. See, if the people in our earthly families are the hope for us, they're where we find our identity, they're where we're, they are our hope for provision and, and for protection, well, then when they let us down, it speaks to the very core of us. But if we are in the family of God, if we are in the Ab of Jesus, man, it's okay that your family members aren't perfect. Your call to love them is still there. Paul has much to say about the kind of exceptional husbands, wives, kids, parents that we should be. It's not that there is less a a call to serve and love our husbands and wives and children and parents and all of that. In fact, if if Jesus is the source for us, then we can love our, our earthly families out of the abundance of what Jesus provides for us. Our families go from becoming the source where we get our sense of identity to the place where we can primarily pour out the love that is reflected from Christ. The world has always been, in all of our minds, kind of divided by family and not. And Jesus radically changes who is in that family and who is in the not. It gives us missionary zeal for our earthly family members who aren't walking with the Lord. It helps us understand that there, man, our first missionary work must be fasting, praying, sharing, loving those that God has given us in an earthly family that are not part of the family of God. It makes us rejoice when we say, man, the people that are in my earthly family are also spiritual family. We are doubly blessed then. But it helps us understand that Jesus is not rejecting his mom. Rather, Jesus is saying, I don't only define who they are, I define who you are. Those who will hear my words and do them. Man, are you in the family of God? If you aren't walking with the Lord, if you have not denied yourself and taken the step of following Jesus, said, I no longer want to live for myself, I want to live for Jesus, accepted the forgiveness of the cross, become a Christian, ask Jesus into your heart. Do you know what I'm talking about? My question for you is, do you want in on that? Would you not like for who you are, how you identify yourself, how the world sees you and how you see yourself not to be defined by the worst mistakes of your past, but rather to be defined by the love of God. Would you not like to be welcomed into the family of God? The door is wide open. There's only one small door. It is deny yourself and follow Jesus, hear him and obey him, but it is wide open to each of us. Would you give up on living for yourself and instead... Join the family of God. And if you are in the family of God, man, are there brothers and sisters you need to forgive? Are there brothers and sisters you need to serve? Are there brothers and sisters you need to pray for? 
We're family. Not like the Honda family. Not even like the Fast and Furious family. But we are in the household of Jesus himself. 